be in uh, Ephesians 4. So if you have Bibles, go ahead and make your way to Ephesians 4, page 977. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, that's it's under your seat that Katie referenced. Uh, just to preface this, we will not do justice to Ephesians 4 by the amount of time that we're able to give to it. Um, so we'll do our best, but we will. Um, there's just a ton of great stuff in this text, and, and we'll have to kind of go through it at a, at a fairly rapid rate. I mentioned this last week, but the second half of Ephesians is going to feel different than the first half. The first half is a lot of truth, who God is, who we are, the grace that God has shown us. The second half has a lot more commands, a lot more directives, a lot of what it looks like to live in light of that truth. And the operative word that you're going to read in the second half of Ephesians is walk. So, so Paul, the Apostle Paul, who's writing this letter, is going to say, walk worthy of your calling and walk in love and walk as children of light and walk wisely. So there are a lot of practical things that are going to show up in this second half of the letter about what it looks like to walk in light of who we are. And really, the call of the Christian life, and this is important for us to always have in our minds when we come across passages that are more directive or more command-oriented, the call of the Christian life is always become who you already are. Become who you are. It's not do a lot of work to become someone different. It's not self-help or self-improvement. Instead, it's what God has done in us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He makes us new creations. He sets us free from sin. He adopts us into his family. And then it's become who you are. Live in light of that identity that you've already been given. And a great picture of that that I came across this past week, um, Shay and I are reading a children's book to our daughter Kara, written by Sally Lloyd-Jones, called um, Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing. Anyone ever encountered that book? It's a great resource for parents of young kids. Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing. And in it, she mentions this illustration, which is true, and I know that because I looked it up on Wikipedia, and everything you read on the internet is reliable and trustworthy. Um, She mentions this illustration that leaves only become their true color in the fall. And I did not know this, But actually how that works is during the spring and summer, the warmer months of the year, the chlorophyll that is in the leaves, and it needs to be there because that's what absorbs sunlight into leaves, that's what actually makes the leaves green. Uh, The colors underneath are always there. They're always red. They're always orange or yellow or brown or whatever the other gorgeous colors of leaves are. And we live in this gorgeous part of the country, particularly in this time of year. Hopefully you've been able to even take some of that in uh, in recent weeks. But leaves actually, in the fall, when the weather gets colder, the chlorophyll decreases in the leaves, and they actually show themselves to be what they actually are. And I love that image, and I love that picture, because the leaf is becoming what it truly is. It's becoming more beautiful. So as we make our way through the second half of Ephesians, let's really wholeheartedly immerse ourselves in this call to become who we already are. Become who we already are. I'm going to read Ephesians 4. 1 through 16, you can follow along with me there as I read that. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all 
and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Jesus, direct our minds and hearts to you this morning. May we see what you have called us to in light of what you have already done for us, and may we become who we are. May we become who we are. We pray that in your name. Amen. So this, this, this idea that Paul says here, walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called, that's kind of a banner that's going to hang over the rest of the chapter of Ephesians, the rest of the, the letter of Ephesians. But there's a specific direction in which Paul takes that in this first part of chapter 4. And here's how I'd summarize that. We are called to walk in unity in light of our diversity for the sake of maturity. Walk in unity in light of our diversity for the sake of maturity. And we'll just spend a little bit of time in each of those, breaking that down into those three different parts. So first, let's talk about walking in unity. And let's, let's just begin that by acknowledging this. We as Christians are terrible at this. We're not good at being unified. Instead of these things that Paul mentions here, being humble, gentle, patient, willing to bear with one another in love, we're instead proud, brash, impatient, and we demand instant justice and reciprocity for any offense real or perceived that's leveled against us. So though it's really sad, as we get more and more aware of human nature, it's really not all that surprising that there are 40,000 different Christian denominations and groups in the world today. 40,000. And not to mention that within each of those 40,000 denominations and groups, there are subgroups and, and pockets within each other that are not unified with one another. So we look at, at a passage like Ephesians 4 in those first six verses especially, and we just go, you know, God have mercy on us. We are a terrible picture of what Paul's describing here, and God has substantial work to do in us and, and through us. To even begin that kind of pursuit, two things we have to latch onto here from what Paul says. We have to think about unity in two ways. Unity is something we maintain, and unity is something we attain. So first, he says that unity is something we maintain. Verse 3, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And to maintain something means what? It means you already have it. It means you already have it. And that's going to 
sound odd. And it's going to fly in the face of our experiences of disunity in the church and in the body of Christ. But the finished work of Jesus means that unity is not just a possibility or a hope. It means it's a reality. And Christians, by definition, we've been able to even celebrate that specifically today. Christians are those who have been unified with Christ and are therefore unified with one another. And we will be unified with one another, not only in this life, but for all eternity. And that's why Ephesians 4 here, and Paul says this, he's not saying we long for one body and we long for one hope. He says there is one body. There is one spirit, one hope. And if that weren't strong enough, he then ties the unity of the church to the unity and the oneness of God himself. So all three, maybe you heard this as we were reading that, all three persons of the Trinity are mentioned in his list of ones. One spirit, one Lord, one God and Father of all. So you and I can, can no more discard our unity than we can discard the unity and the oneness of the triune God. So unity is something we maintain. We have it in this fundamental, positional kind of way, so we fight to maintain that. But it's also something we strive to attain. And if you skip down to verse 13, Paul says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. So this is yet another paradox that, that, that comes up in Paul's letter in Ephesians. We've already seen, like last week, we're supposed to know the love of Christ that cannot be known, that surpasses knowledge. That's a paradox. It doesn't make sense to us, necessarily. Like that here, we're supposed to, we are, we are unified, we are unified, and yet we're not unified. We don't have it yet. So we have it positionally, fundamentally, but we don't have it experientially in our life. And what Paul is saying here is that we strive to experience the unity that is already ours in Christ. How do we do that? Just a couple quick things from Paul's list of ones there. Paul says that there is one body. One body. So Jesus doesn't have you know, 40,000 different churches or types of church. Jesus has one church. And practically, for us, that means that we always have to view ourselves first as members of Jesus' church before we ever start to identify as members of some other subset or, or pocket of Christianity. Because otherwise, if we don't first see ourselves as members of Jesus' church, we're really going to trample people and disregard people who we're fundamentally unified with as brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul says there's one faith. So there aren't multiple gospels. There, there really is one gospel, one message of good news through which people experience salvation. There's not a, there's not a number of those. So there are really essential considerations that we have to make here. There are people who um, masquerade as Christians, but that proclaim an entirely different gospel. Paul warns of that, actually, in other letters, like, like Galatians. But practically, for us, that means that the idea here is not unity at all costs. Unity in itself is fantastic. It's not the end goal. It's unity in Christ that we're after. So we can't, we're not able to sacrifice Jesus, sacrifice the gospel for the sake of unity. Really, there's not even anything like unity outside of that anyway. But at the same time, we have to really carefully differentiate between matters of first importance and things that are secondary issues. 
And we could talk a long time about that. There's some great resources on, like, what are the things in the message of the gospel that are core and fundamental primary issues, and what is secondary? If you're ever interested in reading more about that, just let me know that. I'd be happy to connect you with some, some resources on that. But the bottom line is that we can't walk around with this perspective that says, unless everybody else believes all of the different points of belief that I believe in my particular subset of Christianity, they're not going to experience the salvation of God. If we walk around with that kind of attitude, we'll never have unity like we're called to have unity here. There's one baptism, Paul says, and I'm really encouraged by how we have embodied that as a specific local expression as Liberty Church. I'm really encouraged by that. You even saw some of that today. We have people who baptize their children based on these promises that God makes to families and to the children of believing parents. We have people that choose not to convictionally in that. We have people who get baptized with different modes, immersion or by sprinkling. And we've been able to have a lot of unity in that as we've done that. So I just want to thank you for being a church where we're able to embody this idea of there's being one baptism in Jesus. And along these lines, uh, baptism, one baptism, means that it doesn't matter who did your baptism. It doesn't, meter, doesn't matter what mode of baptism was used when you got baptized. And this will perhaps be, be controversial in some circles. It would definitely be controversial. Um, but but my, me personally, my convictions, I would actually never encourage someone to be rebaptized. I would never encourage someone to be rebaptized. Uh, if you were baptized as a baby, if you were baptized in the Catholic Church, if you were baptized in the Eastern Orthodox Church, any Protestant denomination, as long as it was done with water and in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I think that biblically we can and should honor that baptism. And this is what always has stood out to me. What is rebaptism other than a statement that says that that baptism isn't good enough? or isn't valid, or is insufficient in some way, and therefore needs to be done again. And I get this. Some people, for the sake of conscience, will choose to be rebaptized. I can envision scenarios in my mind where that makes sense. Your conscience is just really heavy, so you really want to be rebaptized. I understand that. But um, if you're asking what I would encourage you to do, I don't encourage people to be rebaptized, and, and that's because if salvation is so much more about what God does in us, and not about our own efforts, which of course will be insufficient and wrong and fall short, then we can accept a baptism done with water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even if it's not exactly the way that we would choose to to practice it or or do it. So that's just a couple practical things. The idea here is maintaining the unity that's already ours while striving to attain the unity we don't yet experience. Okay, second... This unity does not mean sameness. So we walk in unity, but it's in light of our diversity. And already in this letter, Paul has talked about Jesus as our peace, that he breaks down the dividing walls of hostility between different people groups. There's actually another kind of diversity that he mentions here, and it's a diversity of gifts. So he talks a ton about unity, one faith, one baptism, one Lord, one God and Father of all. Verse 7, but, but, Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So there's something very, very individual and very unique about the way God gives his grace to us. 
And when we're talking about grace here, we're not talking about God saving grace as if there were like different levels of salvation. What we're talking about is the grace that God gives that empowers his people, that we all get to become who God has created us to be, who he has called us to be, and to do the work that God's called us to do. So Christians, and this is really good news, they're not carbon copies of one another. And that's not just because we come from different backgrounds or socioeconomic status or races or ethnicities. It's because Jesus gifts us with different measures of his grace. We can't forget, as we think about that, what Paul has already said in this letter, which is that God actually lavishes his grace on all of his people. And we, we have to remember that because if we don't, we'll read a verse like Ephesians 4, verse 7, and we'll start to think about these different measures of grace as if they like delineated superiority. Who's better than you? Who has better grace? Who has more grace? And those aren't the questions that we're meant to ask. We're actually meant to ask, what kind of specific grace has God given me, and how am I meant to use that for the sake of others? And the main example that Paul uses then here in this text is actually one of the places that we're most likely to do this poorly. And it's leadership in the local church. He says that God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. And I won't break down what the differences between those would be for the sake of time this morning. But the idea is that God gives some people to be in these leadership roles in the church. And it's not everybody. He gives some to those positions. But what we can't do with that is we can't let ourselves start to think that that creates like a varsity team and then a JV team. And I think sadly but truly, that's an impression that a lot of us carry around. I grew up in the church. That's an impression I carried with me for years. Like the people that really loved God, the people that were really serious about their faith, that really wanted to use their lives for things that counted, well, they became apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Everybody else, they're valuable, they're important, they just don't quite make the cut. JV, JV team. That's really a dangerous and a false understanding of what leadership is in the church. Okay, what are leaders in the church meant to do? Paul here pulls out one of the primary job descriptions of a leader in the church of Jesus, and it's to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And this, again, is a major corrective to the notions that we carry around about who's supposed to do what in the body of Christ. I think a majority of Christians have the impression that pastors do ministry and people participate. So pastors or or paid ministry or vocational ministry or staff members, whatever, they're the ones who do ministry. Everybody else, they're supposed to give money. They're supposed to volunteer. They're supposed to participate in the ministry that the professionals do. But what is... But who does Paul say does the work of ministry? The saints. The saints. In other words, ministry is meant to be done not by these few, but by everyone. And a pastor's role is primarily not to do the ministry for people, but rather to equip people themselves to do the ministry. Now, this this paradigm of pastors equipping so that all Christians do the work of ministry It's a deep conviction of mine. It's something that actually was formative in me wanting to be a pastor. And yet, it's something that I acknowledge I have not done 
and we have not done as a church as well as I want to. So me, Matt, before God, I'm a doer by nature. It's part of kind of my wiring. And it's really, and there's some good things about that, I suppose, but there's also some liabilities to that. Um, And one of the liabilities specifically in the, the role in which I play as a pastor of a church is that it's easy for me to gravitate back into doing rather than to equip. And so I don't know if this will feel odd to you or not. I'm actually going to ask you to receive an apology from me about that. I want to say to, to you as our church, and particularly those of you who, who consider this to be your, your church, that I'm sorry for not being the equipper that God calls me to be and really the equipper that I, that I want to be. And I felt, as I read Ephesians 4 this week, just deep conviction from the Spirit of God. Not crushing, not like I should hang up and never do this again, but, but conviction from the Spirit of God. And the reason that it hit me so hard is because when I read Ephesians 4, I can see that when I'm, as a pastor, more of a doer than an equipper, it short-circuits the design of God for how he's created the church and how he's designed the church to mature. It short-circuits really the, the process for building up the body in love. Maybe a better way to say it is that it stunts growth. When I become a doer more than I am an equipper in the role that I sit in as a pastor, it stunts growth. Mine, yours, and the church's. So I'm, I'm asking you to forgive me for that. And as I'm thinking about and considering the growth that I need in that, the growth that, that we need as a church, there's a, few, a couple things that I just would, would want to ask of you. One is, would you ask God to give you an increasing desire to do the work of ministry? Would you ask God to give you that desire? Would you ask God to give you a desire to be the hands and feet of Jesus to do the work of ministry? And ask him as you do that to, to rip out the impulses you have to outsource ministry to paid professionals. We, I think we pick that notion up. I think it, it lives within all of us, particularly in our culture. So ask him to rip that out. And as God stirs that desire, ask him also to specifically open your eyes to opportunities that he's put before you to use your life, to use the gifts he's given you to, to live and speak and serve as the presence of Jesus. In addition to asking God to do that, would you let me know what kind of equipping you need to do that? Would you let me know what kind of equipping you need to do that? And this is not a rhetorical question. Like, call me, email me, let me know the kind of equipping that you need to do that. Because by God's grace, I want to become a better equipper. I want to become more effective in that. And that has to be a conversation, not a monologue. There are some things that God will call me to equip you in, whether you want to be equipped in them or not. That's, I guess, a little more of a monologue. But a lot of it will be conversational. I need to know what you need to be equipped in. And let me just say this from the get-go. I guarantee you I will let you down uh, and not meet meet 100% of your expectations in that. But I do want to shape my work as an equipper of the saints by what really you need to be equipped in so that you can run in the work and the ministry that God has given you to do. Lastly, briefly, the reason that all this equipping and doing ministry is so important is because it brings maturity. So we walk in light of our diverse, sorry, we walk in unity in light of our diversity for the sake of maturity. And the only 
two quick things that I want to say about that this morning. There's two marks of maturity that Paul draws out here in Ephesians 4. One is being anchored, and the other is speaking the truth in love. Being anchored and speaking the truth in love. So maturity means being anchored. And the picture is of a ship that's anchored in the midst of waves and wind. Without an anchor, ships are basically subject to whatever is happening around them, the wind and the waves. Wherever the wind and the waves take them, that's where they go. And likewise, Christians who are not mature are prone to follow fads. Or they're prone to look for silver bullet solutions to the struggles of life. And all of us, I think we need to admit, are prone to this. Because it's just a lot easier. It's just a lot easier to ride out the wind and the waves of our culture or the latest book that you read or the latest strong opinion from a smart person that you heard rather than to actually anchor yourselves in the realities of who God is and who you are in light of that and what it looks like to live as in faithful response to him. It's actually a lot more painful and a lot more violent to be anchored. And the image that comes to mind here for me is from the movie in the 90s, Twister. Near the end of that movie, the two protagonists are in the path of this huge F5 tornado, and they run into a farmhouse, and they find like a water pipe that goes deep into the ground, and they tether themselves to it with a belt. Really unrealistic. Don't try. That won't really help you. I lived in Kansas for a while. We were taught never to actually try that. Um, Really unrealistic, and yet it's a really vivid image. It's a really vivid image as this tornado tears through, and they're blown you know, strapped into this pipe off the, off the ground in the air blowing around like a balloon. Okay, that's what being anchored is like. It's not this peaceful image of like a harbor where we put down anchor because we're in port. It's not that image. It's being tethered to an anchor while you're whipped around violently by the wind and the waves. And in an era that we're in where Christendom comes to an end in the West and where we live in an increasingly post-Christian culture, more and more we need an anchor because we can't rely on the wind and wave. We never could, but we really can't rely on the wind and waves of culture to direct us where we're meant to go. Second mark of Christian maturity, speak the truth in love. And this would require a whole series of sermons to really do well. The only thing I want to say about it today, the church is meant to be both a loving community and a truth-telling community. And it's not meant to be a choice between one or the other as we seek to apply that in any given situation that we're applying that. So, though we could talk about this for a long time, today, just let Paul's words free you from a choice that you don't have to make. We will always have to wrestle with what it looks like to care for someone well, but the choice is not between love and truth or like what percentage of each am I going to employ? Let's do 80% love and 20% truth in this case. That's not the way to think about it. Instead, we're always trying to discern what the combination of both all love and all truth looks like together. And the genuine expression of one always involves the other. Always involves the other. And this really is what brings us then full circle. Because there's no better picture of this maturity than Jesus. And when we're called to maturity, we're called to attain what Paul says here, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Jesus. Who's Jesus? 
Well, he's the anchored one. He's the anchored one. He was not blown to and fro by the wind and the waves of what other people expected of him or asked him to do. He did, like he said, only what he saw the Father doing. Only the work that God had sent him into the world to do. He was the anchored one. And in Jesus, you also have this full and complete expression of both God's truth and God's love. And so Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. I am the embodiment of what truth is. And then reflecting back on that some years later, the Apostle John says that God is love, and actually this specifically is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent Jesus to be the sacrifice for our sins. So this finished work of Jesus, which we're going to come to the table to celebrate here in a moment, is this perfect picture of both God's truth and God's love expressed together. So become who you are. As Christians, we walk in unity because we've been united with Christ. And because there is one Spirit and one Lord and one God and Father of all, there is therefore one faith and one hope and one baptism for us. And we walk in unity in light of our diversity because as he lavishes his grace upon us, Jesus, by the measure of his gift, gives us specific types of grace that we might play the part we're called to play in building up the body of Christ. And we walk in unity in light of our diversity for the sake of maturity because of Jesus' own maturity, he enables us to mature ourselves. So through Jesus, and like Paul says, until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and to mature manhood, may we, as Liberty Church, may we grow up in every way to Jesus who is our head. Amen. We pray for us. Jesus, you have done the work that we could not do. And you have united us with you and with one another. And you have given us gifts that we might sharpen one another and build up your body in different specific ways. We pray that you would continue to open our eyes, that we might attain to this unity, that we might recognize who we are and who others are and appreciate one another for the diversity of gifts in your body and that we might truly grow up into maturity. Would you mature us through one another? I pray that we would be a church where pastors and leaders equip well and where all of us together shoulder the responsibility of doing the work of ministry. Enable that in us, but more than anything, remind us that it's by your finished work that we can become this, that we can become who we already have been made to be. And that's what we celebrate when we come to this table today. So meet us as we come. We pray this in your name. Amen. Just as baptism is the word of God made visible, so is communion, the Lord's Supper, the word made visible. We see at this table what the cost was for Jesus to buy us back from slavery to sin, to give us freedom to give us newness of life. And we know from the reliable testimony of Scripture 